setbacks. Man, they are unwelcome in our life. A setback is something that is a circumstance that blocks our plans. It disrupts our dreams. It invades our life. They're usually unplanned, unpredictable, and unpleasant, these setbacks. And here's the thing. We've all had them, right? I mean, you kind of mentally chart a course about what your life's going to look like and what's going to happen, and you set some goals. But every now and then, as you're going down that path, you encounter setbacks. Well, the awesome news is that we will probably continue to experience setbacks in the future. Isn't that great? But what if setbacks are actually something else in disguise? What if setbacks actually aren't all that bad? Like I know for me, I've shared this before, one of my greatest setbacks that I've ever experienced, it was my vision. Because I wanted to get into the Air Force. And I wanted to get into it so bad I could taste it. And when I found out that my vision kept me out, that was a major setback in my life. Or was it? Because I didn't go into the Air Force, but I ended up going into full-time ministry. And if I would have gone into the Air Force, maybe I wouldn't have gone into full-time ministry. And if I wouldn't have gone into full-time ministry, maybe I would have never experienced God and his faithfulness and his passion and stuff in my life like I had. So maybe the setback in my life was really a setup to help experience God in a different way, in a more powerful way. Had a dear friend this last week, had some health stuff going on at work, goes to the hospital, finds out that he's having a minor heart attack. Next thing you know, he's in a hospital bed. He's laying there right now waiting for bypass surgery. You go to work thinking you're going to do your thing. You find out you're having a heart attack. We would call that a setback. And now he's sitting there probably watching online right now waiting for the surgery. And I asked him, I said, how are you seeing this setback as something that could already be producing spiritual fruit in your life? And these were some of his responses. He said, my boss says she prayed for the very first time in her life because she's praying for him. He said, my brother, who's an agnostic, borderline atheist, is on his way to Cleveland and driving with my brother, who's a strong believer. He's currently wrestling with mortality. And the prayer of our family is that God will use this to show himself to him in a new way. He said, and for me, I see how God's providing through others. I recognize once again how much I need the Lord in all things and how much my significance in this world is to point to Jesus, nothing else. And he said this, he said, setbacks are just opportunities in disguise. What setbacks have you experienced in your life? When you look back over the last year, five years, 10 years, 20 years of your life, what have been setbacks in your life that now that you're out of it and down the road, you went, those really weren't setbacks as much as they were setups because they got me to think about God, to draw close to God, to learn about God, to glorify God in a way that I would have never done before in my life. What setback are you coming in here right now wrestling with? What relational, financial, health-oriented setback are you going through right now? That down the road, you're going to look back on this moment and go, you know what, that looked like a setback, but in reality it was a setup because God was doing something in my heart and God was doing something in my life. You know, as we go through this book called Genesis, it's, it's all about our origins, man. We, we learn about our roots, where we came from as, as a human race. 
We learned about the roots of the, of the Hebrew people, the people of God. We've learned about relationships and, and how uh, we've seen some great models of what to do and what not to do. We, we're finding out about God's redemption, how no matter how big of a mess we make of our life or no matter how much of a mess we find ourselves being in in life, God's sovereign power can redeem things out of that mess. Those setbacks that end up being set up somehow. And today we're going to look at a new guy in Genesis. We haven't seen him yet. He actually takes up a significant portion of Genesis. There's many chapters of Genesis dedicated to him, and his name is Joseph. And Joseph is a man that we're going to see starting this morning that had many setbacks. But yet, as we look at his life in reality, they were setups to give God more glory. So I invite you to open up your Bibles with me today to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Hopefully all of you have a Bible or a Bible application that you can fire up. If you find yourself sitting here today and you don't have a Bible, a couple things. One, we are a church that opens the Bible. So man, on your return visit, I encourage you to have one to bring. Second, the verses we're going through are on the screen today so you can follow along. Third, if you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free as a gift. So stop by the information center on the way out and get a free Bible so you can have a Bible. And what we're going to do is we're going to find ourselves uh, segueing from this man named Jacob, who we saw God change his name to what? Israel. That's where the name Israel came from, this man Jacob. And, and Jacob now is going to this next chapter and season. He's, he's got these sons, and one of them, his name is Joseph, and that's where we pick up here in Genesis 37. We're going to be teaching out of Genesis 37 through 41. To your relief, we're not reading every verse. So I'm just going to zoom in and zoom out in multiple places looking at Joseph's life. But in Genesis 37, we're kicked off here with this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Now Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Yeah, wives. Wasn't supposed to have that many, but does. And Joseph, bought, uh, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here we have Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. He's got all these sons. Here's a little diagram of the family tree uh, that, that we're talking about here. And you, you can see here we've got Isaac and then Jacob. And then if you follow Jacob down over to the middle, you see Joseph. And those are all his brothers. We've got a highly mixed dysfunctional family, right? But God's using it. But God's using it. He's still using that major setback uh, for some setups. And what we see here is that there's already tensions because you've got multiple wives, you've got multiple kids from multiple wives, and there's sibling rivalry between Rachel and Leah who kind of had like a baby war, who can provide more kids for you know, their husband, and all this stuff's in the mix. And, and Jacob fixates on Joseph because he was a miracle baby. He, he and Rachel weren't supposed to be able to have kids and Joseph came on the scene late in their age, so he, he had a high degree of favoritism for him, to the point that he even made him a special jacket to make him stand out. And when, when we hear that he made this you know, special jacket of many colors, this robe of many colors, it doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but that's no simple feat. You know, I had a chance to be in Israel this last year, and they took us to a village that was a reenactment of the ancient village. 
And they showed us how they made clothes. And they showed how they took the wool off the sheep and they would have to spindle it. And then they would take all these ingredients, you know, roots or berries or like purple. Purple is the hardest color to get to because it used the blood of a rare snail. Like it's hard to get a hold of this stuff. And so for Jacob to have this fancy robe made with all these colors was no simple task. And it elevated Joseph above his brothers, which did not go well for them. And if any of you have siblings, you know about this. And so... Joseph was favored. And on top of that, if, if you were to keep reading, you start to see Joseph starts to have dreams. God's given him a sensitivity with dreams. And as Joseph is dreaming, he has two specific dreams, which basically amount to this. He becomes elevated above his mom, his dad, and his brothers. And being 17 years old and not probably that wise of a guy, he decides to share that with his brothers and his mom and dad. You can imagine how that went over. And by the way... <laughs> You're going to bow down to me someday. <laughs> oh, yeah, you little twerp, I'll show you bow down, you know? And so this hostility and this angst and this hatred and this jealousy were just flooded into these relationships. And what happens one day is Jacob says to Joseph, he says, hey, your brothers are out watching the flocks. They're like 70 to 80 miles away. They're in the Valley of Haran somewhere, and, and they're up there in Shechem area, somewhere up there. Just go check on your brothers, does that sound like an ideal situation for you to be the favored son by yourself traveling 70, 80 miles away to other dudes who are not big fans? <laughs> it wasn't a good setup. In fact, when we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, look what we see develop here. It says, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. You think you've had a bad day. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. That when, uh, then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams then. But when Reuben, one of the older brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. Reuben wanted to come back and rescue Joseph. Verse 23 so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. I bet they got a lot of sick pleasure out of that. The robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. And there was no water in it. This could have been an empty water well. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. You know what they call that? A setback. I'm going to go visit my brothers watching the flocks. Next thing you know... They take you, they throw you in a pit, and they're talking about killing you. Then they decide not to kill you, but what they do instead is they sell you to a band of traders coming by, and those traders take you and put your neck in an iron and put shackles on you and take you to a far country. You're not going to see your mom and dad again. You're not going to see your brothers or sisters. You're not going to be home. Can you imagine walking out of the doors today and just being snatched and taken and never brought back to the people and place you love? It's a setback. 
or is it? And as we continue to look at the life of Joseph, we see more develop. And what we see develop as we continue, what happens to him in Genesis 39? Now, of course, some of you think, well, what, what did happen with Jacob? Well, sin breeds sin, right? So the brothers do this with Jacob. They're like, well, what do we tell dad? Well, they kill a goat and they dip the fancy robe in its blood and present it to the father, and he thinks the wild animal got him. And so they deceive him. I mean, just evil breeds evil. Sin breeds sin. And all this is taking place. But what takes place in Joseph from this point? We pick up the story in Genesis 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So Joseph was a looker. So we see what happens here. As Joseph is taken as a slave, he's taken all the way down to Egypt. He's bought by this elite soldier named Potiphar, who's probably a wealthy guy, prominent position. And right away, Potiphar sees there's something different about Joseph. There's something different about the way he carries himself. There's something different about his character. There's something different about this man. And I love what it says. It says he identified that the hand of the Lord was upon him. Isn't that something that you and I want to be said of us? That when the people in our lives look at us, they go, man, the hand of God is on you. The the way you deal with life and the troubles of life and just stuff, like God's hand's upon you. We can see it. Potiphar sees the hand of God upon Joseph, identifies that God is doing something in and through his life. And so what does he do? He turns over his keys of his entire household to Joseph. I mean, I don't know how long your list is of the people in your life that for whatever reason you just said, you know what, you can have the keys to my house, my car, here's all my logins, here's all my passwords, here's my entire accounts, here's all my bank accounts, savings accounts, you can manage everything for me, I'm going to go play golf now. I don't think we probably have a long list of names for those kind of people, let alone if it's some stranger you just bought from a bunch of traders and brought into your home as a servant. So you've got to understand how unique and how profound this is. The Potiphar just said, it's yours. You know what happened? That was a setback that he got sold as a slave, but it was a setup to make an impact, to make an influence in Potiphar's life about this God that he loved and served. And he found himself in a good place for now. Because what happens next, if you know the story of Joseph, is that Potiphar wasn't the only one that took a liking to Joseph. Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. See, last verse, he was handsome in form and appearance, and he was a man of character. Isn't it interesting how immoral people identify someone with moral um, scruples and ability, and they want to take it, want to take it, And so she relentlessly, day after day after day, invited him. She made advances at him every day, and he denied them all. 
in his integrity. He denied them all as a man of God. And I love what he said when you read through Genesis 39. When he looked to her, he didn't say, hey, I can't do this because of Potiphar. He says, how could I do this and sin against the Lord? He went above Potiphar's pay grade. He said, I'm not going to do this against God. So she got angry about that. And then what she did is she fabricated a lie to her husband that Joseph came to her and tried to force himself upon her. Well, now you know what you call that? Setback. Let's look what Potiphar does when you pick up the story in Genesis 39, 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. It's like, man, this, this is one of those guys that doesn't ever seem to catch a break, right? Man, I, I'm, I'm chilling here. I, I'm, I'm with my brothers and my sons. Everything's good. Now I'm in a pit. Now I'm a slave. Okay, now I'm in a house. I'm still a slave, but at least it's better. Oh, now I'm in prison. Setback, setback, setback. Where are they? Because look what happens when you continue on. Verse 21. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It was a setback that God turned into a setup to glorify him again while in the prison. So while in the prison, now he's got exposure to all these prisoners, he's got exposure to this prison keeper, and that prison keeper goes, there's something different about this guy. I can trust him. There's something about his character. There's something about the way he talks about his God, the way he worships his God. There's something solid about this guy that I can trust. So just like Potiphar turned over the keys to his house and all his belongings, this guy turns over the keys to all the prison. You're in charge. I'm going to go play golf. It's like this is a theme, that these setbacks are turning into these setups to glorify God somehow. Well, as you continue through the life of Joseph, as he's in prison, you see something else develop, which is really interesting. So now he's in Egypt. So obviously, Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt. Well, Pharaoh's chief baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer, the guy who holds the cup for Pharaoh to drink from, who tests it to make sure there isn't poison in it, they obviously did something to offend Pharaoh. I don't know if, you know, he didn't like the flavor of the juice that day or didn't like the bread or whatever it was, but he puts these guys in prison. Well, if they're going to go to prison, guess who they're going to have exposure to? Joseph. And so as they start mixing it up and hanging out with Joseph, both these guys have a dream. And they both wake up going, man, we had these weird dreams and we don't know what to do with them. And Joseph's like, well, God owns the interpretation of dreams. I'll ask him and we'll see what happens. And God downloaded what those dreams meant to Joseph. And so for the cupbearer, when he relayed his dream back to Joseph, Joseph said, you're going to be restored, man. You're, you're going to go back to work for Pharaoh. He's going to restore you. It's all going to be good again. And the baker's like, what about me? What about me? He says, you're going to die. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm going to go back to my prison cell now. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. On Pharaoh's birthday, he releases the cupbearer and releases the baker. He hangs the baker. How would you like that as a birthday gift? That's twisted and morbid, you know? And he restores the cupbearer. But before they got out of that prison, when you read through Genesis 40 and you look at the conversation between Joseph and the cupbearer, here's what happens. He says, when you get sprung, <laughs> when you are out of prison and you're back with Pharaoh, please remember me. I'm innocent, because that's what everybody in jail says. I'm innocent, you know? I'm innocent. 
I was framed. I shouldn't be here. You're going to get close to Pharaoh. Would you tell Pharaoh that there's a good, innocent guy in this prison? Put in a good word for me. And the cupbearer's like, got your back. You, you, you bet, man. Well, when we look at Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, after he's let out, it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. You know what you call that? Setback. You ever been in a situation where there's that person you're talking to or an, an opening that you think can open up and get you out of this bad situation? Think about Joseph. He's in prison. And he, and he interprets this dream and, and he makes a deal with this guy and the guy leaves. He's like, oh, this, this, you know, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting and nothing ever happens. This guy forgets him. He doesn't make good on his end of the deal. How much... Later, do we see Joseph interacting with him? Well, look at Genesis chapter 41. In Genesis 41, it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh has a dream. <laughs> so two years after he made this agreement, nothing happens. So when Joseph, when we see Joseph as the little boy, he's going to go check on his brothers. He's 17 years old. Right now, now Joseph's about 30. <laughs> so this is all that's happening in his young adult years. All these setbacks, but yet, when you look at him, start to be setups where he's kind of moving in closer to situations. What happens two whole years later? Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has this crazy dream about this river and like seven fat cows come out and then seven scrawny looking ugly cows come out and the scrawny cows eat the fat cows and Pharaoh wakes up and goes, I had this crazy dream, man, what did I eat last night? And he gathers all the magicians, he gathers all the wise men of Egypt and says, what does the dream mean? And they said, we don't know. We got nothing. Open a McDonald's in Egypt. I don't know, what is this? Cow's river thing. And at that moment, two years later, the cupbearer goes, oh, um, my bad. Uh, I just, my memory is starting to kick in now. There was a guy that I was hanging out with in this prison that I had a dream, and so did this other guy, and he told us what would happen, and it happened exactly the way it happened. Then Pharaoh goes, bring him to me. So next thing you know, Joseph is cleaned up and brought to the ruler of Egypt face to face. Like, think about that. That's crazy. That's crazy that some little dude out watching animals from this mixed family miles away in another country now is standing face to face with the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he's saying, I've had a dream, and I need you to interpret it, because I hear you can. What I love about that moment is Joseph doesn't flinch. He's not intimidated. He doesn't flinch. He says, the meaning of your dream belongs to God. He didn't say, uh, yeah, I can do it, man. I got your back. Check this out. Or like, you know, yeah, I'll see what I can do. He, it's God. God owns it. Anything that's about to happen here is a thing of God. And so Pharaoh tells him the dreams about the rivers and the cows, and God downloads the meaning of the dream to Joseph. And Joseph says, here's what it means. You're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. But Joseph didn't stop there. Then Joseph said, here's a plan how you can survive the famine. And he gave uh, the Pharaoh an idea. Well, look what happens when we pick it up in Genesis chapter 41. In Genesis 41, verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Isn't that another thing we want said of us by the people that interact with you and I? Don't, they, don't you want people to look at you and when they hear what comes out of your mouth and when they see what comes from your life, they go, man, the Spirit of God is living in that person. There's things that's going, that, are, that are going on inside that person that are above them, beyond them, that are supernatural. 
there's a hope in them, there's a peace in them, there's a joy in them that is beyond human. What is it? It's the Spirit of God residing in you. Because the second you invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God comes to live and dwell in you. And you have the power of God abiding in you. And if that's the case, it's going to make a difference. And it's going to be seen. And it's going to be sensed. And it's going to be felt. And the Pharaoh sees this in Joseph, and the Spirit of God's in him. In the verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over the land of all of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in a second chariot. Then he called out before him, bowed the knee, and thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's life, setback. That was a setup. That was a setback. That was a setup. That was a setback. That was a setup. And just as Potiphar turned over the keys to his house, and just as the, the prison guard turned over the keys to the prison, Pharaoh turns over the keys to Egypt? That's crazy. That's what happens when God chooses to use your setbacks as setups for his glory. Now, when we look at the life of Joseph, uh, this is one of the most popular ways it's described. And there's a little diagram here to explain it. It says that Joseph went from privilege to the pit, to the prison, to the palace. They started out as his favorite son, then he was in this pit, then he got sent you know, to this prison, and then boom, he's in the palace. And we look at that and we go, wow, that's amazing. But sometimes there's a disconnect for us because we can go, Okay, I can relate to being in privilege. I can relate to being in a pit. I can relate to being in prison in a sense, you know. But a palace? Ah, I feel a little disconnected here. I think a better way for us to think about Joseph's life and how we can interface with Joseph's life, it's more like this. Joseph went from a privilege to the pit to the prison to a platform. God gave Joseph a platform, something that he could speak from, something that would be his unique footing, he would have his own unique platform to speak about God and speak of God and experience God. In this case, it was a palace. It was the second in charge of all of Egypt, which there's still a greater planet work that we'll learn more about in the weeks to come. But so his platform was a palace. Like for some of you, you can relate to that. Some of you that are business leaders, business owners, you know what? God's given you success. God's given you an incredible mind. He's given you an incredible work ethic. He's given you the resources. And you're growing. Your business is growing. Your leadership's growing. And you're finding yourself successful. You know what that is? That's a platform where God says, I want you to experience me, and I want you to glorify me. If you're a business owner, how are you glorifying God? How are you putting the spotlight on God with the success you've had? But for some of the rest of us, maybe we can't relate to the platform. Maybe we can't relate to that, 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 that um, palace mindset. Instead, maybe your platform is a thing of pain. Maybe your platform is that baby that you lost or that spouse that you lost or maybe that divorce that you had or maybe the tragedy that entered into your life or maybe the illness that you were diagnosed with. All of us here have been given something unique to us in a sense that has entered into our life that was a setback Then reality is some sort of platform that God wants to use in your life. He wants you to use it to experience him in ways that you could have never experienced him before. He, he wants you to um, live for him, grow close to him, and this is the platform he's brought into your life to do that so you can speak for him from that place of, that, that place of pain, 
from that place of success, from that place of tragedy. Some of you sitting going, that's crazy to think about. That's right. It's also crazy for a little boy to become the second in charge of Egypt, but that's what God does. He just does crazy things. I know for us, I've talked about this, the platform that, that God gave my wife and I was infertility. Like we had a plan, get married, have kids, do the whole thing, you know? And we, the, the obstruction, the setback was infertility. It came flooding into our life. We didn't ask for that. We didn't want that. To be totally transparent with you, even when I'm doing child dedications or reading verses like about Hannah that was barren and she asked God for a baby and God opened up her womb, it still stings a little bit. There's still a little touch of like, we prayed for that. That didn't happen. Why, why, why can't we do that? But you know what? We've resolved that one, but God gave us the setback of infertility that's in reality a setup to glorify him. It's become a platform where we can experience him in ways we would have never experienced him before, and we can speak on behalf of him and glorify him in ways that we never could have before. Because the three beautiful children that God's given us, I wouldn't trade them for one biological child. Because God's taught us about his love. God's taught us about his love through that experience. And sure, there's still a mingling of pain and joy, but it's there. And the chance when we can sit down and, and look at other couples that are walking this valley going, we can relate to you and, and we can speak hope and we can speak peace and we can open the word of God and we can talk about how infertility can be a way you can experience God and watch how God can use that how, as a platform. It doesn't feel like a palace, let me tell you that, but it's a platform. What platform has God given you? What setback you've been so fixated on thinking this is all bad, this is all bad, this is all bad, that right here, right now, God's trying to peel back your brain and go, it's not all bad, it's a setup that I'm going to use so that you can experience me differently. You can hear my voice differently. Some of you have had divorces. And when you stood at the altar with that person, you never imagined you're going to be where you're at. And God's trying to tell you, you know what? Stop thinking about that human relationship for a season. Would you just think about me? You need me. You need, you need me to be your spouse. Give you unconditional, perfect love. You think about that loss, that loved one that you've lost. And God's trying to, trying to tell you, you know what? Life is precious. And whether it's an infant or an elderly person, life's precious, every day is precious, and you need to be right with me. And the only way you're going to have hope and loss is that you have a firm understanding of eternity. I mean, you want to talk about eternity and setbacks. I'll tell you about one of the greatest setbacks ever. 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Savior. They were waiting for an anointed one who would come and rescue them. And he came. In a miraculous fashion, a miraculous birth, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he was born. You know what they did? They rejected him. Nah, that's not who we're waiting for. That's called a setback. <laughs> and Jesus grew. And as he walked around the Sea of Galilee, and as he walked around Israel and Palestine, and he, he did miracles, and he taught the truth of God, and he started gathering a, followers, a, a group of people that were followers. All those people fell in love with him. The disciples loved him, and the followers loved him, and the people loved him, and they started connecting the dots going, you know what? He's going to come in, he's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to reign over Jerusalem. This is amazing. And they're just waiting for Jesus, because Jesus is talking about the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. They're like, yes, we can't wait to reign with you in your kingdom. And then all of a sudden, he's arrested. Well, I didn't see that one coming. That's a setback. And then he was beaten. 
Okay, this is taking a little bit further than we thought. That, that's a setback. And then they nailed him to a cross and hung him at a crucifixion. If you were a follower of Christ, anticipating his rise to power, what would you call that? That's beyond a setback. But see, the cross wasn't a setback. The cross of Jesus Christ was a setup to glorify God because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and that was his divine way of authenticating that he is God and he alone forgives sins and he alone provides ways to heaven and he alone gives new life. The cross was not a setback. The cross was a setup to glorify God. And many of you here understand that. And you understand that Jesus Christ is God and he died on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and he's coming back and the only way you're going to have your sins forgiven and the only way you're going to be made right with God is through Jesus. Many of you understand that. Some of you don't. And some of you are sitting here and for the first time it's becoming crystal clear. All the setbacks that have been in your life, even the setbacks made you think, "Mm, maybe I'll try church today. Those weren't setbacks. They were setups so that today you could hear God say, I love you. I want you. I will forgive you if you open up your life and heart and come to me. I provided a way through the cross of Jesus. I provided a way through the resurrection. No, those things have been setups. You know, we had a baptism a few weeks ago. Man, I had a bunch of people get baptized, just go public with their love for Jesus through their public expression of being immersed in water. And each one of those names, each one of those faces have a story. And one of those people that got baptized was a young man named Josh. Here's a little bit of Josh's story. He said, I grew up in a really solid home. My parents were not churchgoers per se, but they were grounded heavily in moral standards. But because of this, I didn't get to know Christ. When I was 10, my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, setback. And from then on, everything at home changed. My mother had to go back to work, setback. My father fell into depression multiple times as his condition worsened, setback. As all this was going on, anger and frustration began to grow in me, setback. I was always good in school, excellent in sports, and had a fair share of friends to show for it, but my morally grounded philosophy of living and my anger were colliding fast, setback. I was wound tight, very opinionated. I vented often. I was belittling and judging others, and it became second nature. After college, I was as lost as ever. But one night, my best friend asked me where I was going when I died and why. I told him heaven because I was a good person. He nearly cried. We know that's not true. From then on, I started seeking God, but all of my efforts seemed to break me down even further. I was laid off from my work, setback. All my... um, uh, and lack of funding, the, uh, uh, laid off from work. All my friends were getting married and having families. The church I joined closed due to lack of funding. And lastly, the girl I'd been dating at the time got pregnant with my child by accident and consequently had an abortion. After she and I broke up, I moved in with a friend and tried to get my life back in order as I cried out to God, seeing as how I couldn't do things on my own anymore and my moralistic philosophy had failed. I began praying in earnest for someone to come into my life and show me what I was doing wrong. A few months later, I ran into a pastor at Starbucks who took an interest in me like no one had ever had, except my best friend. He helped me reconcile as I began to understand who Christ was and is, rather than what I've been told or experienced. His intentional discipleship eventually led to a very open and honest conversation with my best friend, now five years after his crazy question to me about heaven. 
That night, we prayed together for the first time, and I gave my life to the Lord. When I woke up the next morning, I felt like my eyes had been opened. I saw people differently, not as bad or good, but as lost, broken, and in need of understanding and being heard. Jesus Christ became truth rather than myth, and that brought a desire to me to be baptized and to share my story. Josh had setback after setback after setback after setback, and each one of those were setups that God was allowing in his life to maneuver him to a place where he realized he needed the Lord. For some of you today, that's exactly what's going on in your life. All the setbacks in your life are things God's allowed into your life to set you up so that you know that you need him and to want him. And maybe today will be the day that you say yes to him. Maybe today will be the day day you just go one step closer to him. For some of you, you're followers of Christ, and as you're sitting here, you've, you have a relationship with Jesus, but what's happened is these things have come into your life, and, and these setbacks have started to take over your mind, and you find yourself answering the question that you usually will never get the answer to. Why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why is this happening? Well, why didn't that happen? Why me? I'm just here to tell you, you're going to get stuck in that question because you may never get the answer this side of heaven. The better question might be to ask, How? God, how are you trying to speak to me through this? God, how are you trying to draw me close to yourself? God, how do you want to be glorified? How can I put the spotlight on you through this stuff going on in my life? And you're a follower of Christ. The reason God's got you here today is to remind you that I am sovereign. I am in charge. I'm in control. Yes, this stuff is happening. Don't let go of me. Joseph didn't let go of God all through that stuff. He stayed faithful. You know he had to emotionally take impact. You know it, had, it was unpleasant, but he, he, he clung to his God. And some of you here today are followers of Christ, and whatever setbacks in your life, God's reminding you, cling to me, I'll use it. Cling to me, I'll use it. Some of you, you're already there. And today it's just fuel to your fire. It's just added encouragement and added affirmation. But we have to learn to train our minds and adopt the understanding that those things that we call setbacks may in actuality be setups to glorify God and experience God differently. Here's the take-home I have for you. The setbacks in our story are setups to give God glory. Would you say that with me? Setbacks in our story are setups to give God glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And God, it's hard to thank you for setbacks. God, it's hard to thank you for things that hurt, things that are confusing, things that are unpleasant, things that don't make sense. God, would you continue to remind us that our life is not really about our life. Our life is about you and needing you and living for you and glorifying you. And Lord God, if you can use our successes to glorify you, Lord, we'll we'll take it. And Lord, if you can use our suffering to glorify you, you'll take it. Lord, for the believers in here that are doing well with that, God, continue to strengthen them. Lord, for the believers in here that are struggling, God, may you have encouraged them and blessed them and reinforced them today to let them see those setbacks and setups by you to glorify yourself. And God, right now, for anyone in this room who they're sitting here going, today's the day I get it. I don't know everything. I don't know enough. But I know, I know this little part that there's a God who loves me. He calls me by name. He came down in person, died on a cross, rose from the grave so that I could have access to him. For those people in this room today, you can even just enter into that relationship with God by simply talking to the Lord. There's no magic formula. There's no magic prayer. But you can just talk to the Lord. You can just say, God, 
I believe. Today, I believe. I believe that you've used all these setbacks in my life as setups to this moment where I proclaim my belief in you. I believe that Jesus came and died on the cross. I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. I believe that forgiveness of my sins is only found in Jesus. And right now, I believe that. Come into my life, Jesus, and make me whole. God, we thank you for all that you do in our life. Lord, I thank you for changed lives. I thank you for new life in Christ. I thank you for all the people here that are experiencing new life in Christ. We thank you for Josh and his story. God, thank you for all the people that pray here at CVC because of those prayers, people like Josh come to the Lord. God, thank you for all the people who serve here because they roll up their sleeves and dive in and serve here, Lord God. People's lives are being changed. God, thank you for the people who give here and use the resources here, Lord God, because every dollar goes to helping people know about new life in Christ. So God, thank you for that. Lord, we, we even give you back these gifts we're about to receive for the multiplication of your kingdom. God, you're an awesome God. Help us to think about those setbacks as setups to give you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's children said,